we have a crisis in the world, tremendous crisis, and also crisis in our consciousness, in us. I see the urgency of change, radical revolution, mutation in the mind. I see it. It is necessary. There is complete quietness of the mind, and that which is silent has vast space. Only then that which is nameless comes into being. This is Urgency of Change, the Krishnamurti podcast. A religious mind never thinks in terms of growth and evolution. It is always jumping out of time. Hello and welcome to episode 117 of Urgency of Change. Season 3 of the Krishnamurti podcast continues with the format of carefully chosen extracts from the archives of the Philosopher's Talks. Each weekly episode focuses on the theme explored by Krishnamurti and the aim is to represent his different approaches to these universal topics. This week's theme is the mind. Upcoming themes are order, fulfilment and health. This is a podcast from Krishnamurti Foundation Trust. Please visit our website at kfoundation.org where you can find a growing collection of in-depth articles on Krishnamurti's teachings, along with key topics and a wide selection of quotes. Our online store stocks all available Krishnamurti books and ships worldwide. You can also find our daily quotes and videos on Instagram and Facebook at Krishnamurti Foundation Trust. If you enjoy the podcast please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, which helps its visibility. This week's episode on The Mind has five sections. The first extract is from the 10th talk in London, 1961, titled The Shallow Mind. Our lives are empty, shallow and we are searching for an ideal. And a shallow mind is so easily satisfied. And it becomes discontented and follows a narrow groove. This pursuit of something other than what is, the pursuit of what should be, is in essence the nature of the shallow mind. And such a mind do what it will. sit cross-legged, meditate upon its navel, or think about the Supreme, whatever it does will still be shallow. 
because the very source, the very essence of this, of it is Shaya. A stupid mind can never become a great mind. What it can do is to realize its own stupidity, and the moment it realizes itself what it is, not imagine what it should be, then there is a breaking down of stupidity. So, when one realizes that, seeking comes to an end, which doesn't mean the mind becomes stagnant. It doesn't mean that the mind goes to sleep. On the contrary, it faces what is actually. And the resolution or the solving of what is, is not the seeking, but the understanding of what is. <coughs> because after all, most people are seeking happiness, God, truth, love everlasting, a permanent abode in the heavens. So all the difficulties all these rockets about. A permanent virtue, a permanent love. And it seems to me a mind that is seeking is a very shallow mind, a very superficial mind. And I think we ought to be a little bit clear on that point. We ought to little investigate it to see the absurdity of a shallow mind and, the, and its activities, rather its absurd acti activities of a shallow mind. Because what we are going to go into this evening, will, you will, one will not be able to penetrate if you are still thinking in terms of seeking making effort, trying to discover. On the contrary, you need an extraordinary, sharp, quiet, still mind. But a shallow mind becoming still is still a, a shallow mind. And it, when it makes efforts to become silent, it will still be a shallow pool. And when the petty mind, the mind that is so learned, so cunning, 
so superficial, because all effort is superficial, because it wants to get somewhere. The acquisitive pursuit of God, of truth, of some state, which involves effort, is the outcome of a mind that is limited, narrow, petty. And such a mind can never be sensitive. I think one has to face the truth of that. That effort to be, to become, to deny, to resist, to cultivate virtue, to suppress, to sublimate, to make itself become something, is in essence the nature of a shallow mind. I know most of you won't agree with this, probably, but it doesn't matter. It's not a matter of agreement or disagreement. It's an obvious psychological fact. Now, when one really realizes it, when one is aware of it, when one sees the truth of it actually, not verbally, not intellectually, not allow the mind to have to ask innumerable questions how to become, how to go out of this shallowness, <coughs> which all imply effort. When one is actually aware of that, then you will see the mind realizes that it cannot do anything about itself. All that it can do is to perceive. See things brutally, ruthlessly, as things are, without distortion, without bringing opinions about the fact. To merely observe, and that is extremely difficult to observe, because our minds are trained to condemn, to compare, 
to compete, to justify. or identify itself with what it sees. So it is never capable of seeing things exactly as they are. To live with a feeling as it is, whether it's jealousy, envy, greed, ambition or what you will, to live with it without distorting it, without having an opinion about it, a judgment, requires a mind that has, that has energy to follow all the movement of that fact. Fact is never still, it's moving, living. But we want to make it still so as to capture it by opinion, by a judgment. <clears throat> so, a mind that is aware of the futility of effort Even in our education, the child, the student that makes effort to learn, never learns. He may know, he may acquire knowledge, he may have a degree, but learning is something beyond effort. Perhaps this evening we'll be able together to learn without effort. And therefore it's no longer within the realm of knowledge. So a mind that is aware of the fact without distortion, discoloration, giving, without giving it any bias to look at ourselves as we are, with all the theories, hopes, despairs, suffering, longings, failures, frustrations, makes the mind astonishingly sharp. What makes the mind dull is belief, is an ideal, habit. A pursuit of its own Enlargement of its own growth as becoming or being something. But to follow a fact requires a very sharp, subtle, active mind 
because the fact is never still. The second extract is from the fourth talk at Brockwood Park in 1980, titled Why is the Mind Caught in Time? So, can the mind keep young? Not, never grow thinner. You understand? My? After all, innocence means not to be, not to hurt, and not to be hurt. Um, the meaning of that word is that: not to hurt, and not to be hurt. Such a mind which is, never has been hurt. You follow on this? Such a mind can never be, can never become senile. You understand? And that requires a great diligence of learning about itself. So as we were saying, to come back from senility, why have we banished death from our life? Which means, why have we Why have our minds caught in time? You understand? Please, this is not intellectual fireworks. This is inquiring into our complex life. Time is by the day yesterday, today and tomorrow, twenty-four hours. But also there is time which is inward, right? psychological time. Right? We are following this? Why We are asking why human mind is caught in psychological time. Are you following all this? Please, we are talking over together, I am not talking to myself. We are asking, why has the mind been crippled by yesterday's memories, regrets, attachments? And strangely, attachments are always in the past. Going to, I won't go into it now. By yesterday, thousand yesterdays, today modified itself and the future, which is time movement. 
This movement is tied psychologically, right? We are asking why has the mind caught in why is it caught in that? Which is time. Right? That is hope. You understand? Hope plays an important part in our life. I hope to become I hope to reach meet you tomorrow, psychologically. I'll meet you tomorrow, but I've already projected my desire to meet you and create a hope out of that. You understand all that? So we are seeing why the mind lives in time. It has evolved in time, right? To have the present mind that we have has evolved through millennia, thousands of years. And that's normal, healthy, obvious. But we're asking why psychologically, inwardly, Time has become so important. You understand my question? You're asking yourself, please. Is it because we're always avoiding what is in order to become something else? You understand what I'm saying? Moving from this to that. Psychologically, I am this, but I should not be this but that. Psychologically, I am unhappy, but I must be happy. Right? The must or will or shall be is the movement of time. I wonder if you are following. Please, you see your life. So, the mind is caught in time because it's always moving away from this, from what is. Right? It will change in time. I will be good, give me time, which is like <coughs> developing a muscle, right? Your muscle may be not sufficiently strong, but if you keep on doing something, strengthen it, it will become strong. With the same mentality, we say, I am this. I will be that. So give me time. Right? And shall what is be changed through time? 
You understand my question? It is, I am anxious. I am in great sense, I'm great, I have great anxiety. Can that anxiety be changed through time? You understand my question? That is, will I become or be in a state where I have no anxiety? See what I have done. I, am ang- I have anxiety, I have projected a state of not being anxious, <coughs> and to arrive at that state I must have time. <coughs> but I never say, can the, uh, this anxiety I have can be changed immediately. You understand my question? And not allow time. <coughs> Are you following this? See what happens. I am anxious. I I hope to be not anxious. There is a time interval, a lag. In that lag of time, all other activities are going on. Other pressures, negligence. You understand? So, anxiety is never solved. I don't know if you are following all this. I think I will come to a state when I have no anxiety. So I am struggling, struggling, struggling. It's like a man who is violent, has invented non-violence, in that time interval he is violent. So he never reaches non-violence. I wonder if you understand all this. Right? So the question is then, can what is be transformed immediately? Which means never allowing time to interfere. Are you coming together? Listen to this, you will find out it's really simple. If we apply our mind, we can solve anything. As has been done, they have been to the moon, built marvelous submarines, incredible things they have done. Here, psychologically, we are so reluctant, so incapable, or made ourselves incapable. So, if we do not allow time, or never think in terms of time, then the fact is not. Right? I wonder if you see that. Because we allow time, the the fact becomes important. If there is no time, it is resolved. Suppose I die this second, there is no problem. You understand what I am saying? When I allow time, I am afraid of death. 
I wonder if you understand all this. But if I, if I live in without time, which is an extraordinary thing if you come go into it, psychologically, never time means accumulation. Right? Time means remembrance. Time means accumulating knowledge about oneself. All that involves time. But when there is no time at all, psychologically, there is nothing. You follow? You are capturing something? Are you understanding something? Please, come So we are saying, rather thinking together, because we have allowed time as a factor to intervene between living and dying, fear arises. Right? So, unless you understand the nature of living and therefore the nature of dying, which is which can be found in the living. You understand? Are you meeting me? No. That is so. Death is the ending, isn't it? The ending. The ending of my possessions. My wife, my children, my house, my ca- my bank account, special bank account. <laughs> the ending of something. The, in that ending, there is no argument, right? I don't say to death, oh, please hold on a minute, right? So there is no. Where there is ending, hmm? a beginning. I wonder if I'll go into it. If when I suppose I, the speaker, when the speaker ends attachment completely, you understand? not to persons, to ideas, the whole process of attachment, with all the consequences of attachment. When there is an ending to it, there's a totally different state of mind, right? Isn't there? I have been attached to my furniture, to my... um, and that attachment has been a burden, and when the ending of that burden, <coughs> there is freedom, right? So, ending is more important than beginning, right? 
you get so can I living end and my anxiety, my fears, my you follow end. Not the bank account, but that's too risky. <laughs> no, no, I mean that. And we are not going to end the bank account. I'm not talking of that. <coughs> Ending psychologically. You understand? Ending my uncertainty. When I am confused, to end it. Not say I must I must find out why I'm confused. What's the cause of confusion? And I must be free from confusion all that time. That is negligence. I wonder if you follow this. Whereas diligence is to be aware of the whole movement of time and to end anxiety immediately. Therefore, there is no accumulation psychologically as knowledge. Right? Now, death is ending. Right? Ending of everything. I know what you will say afterwards. What about reincarnation? I know all that. We come to it if we have time. I'm not avoiding it. I, if I say I don't know, I'll say I don't know. I don't play hypocrisy with all this. Death is an ending, and I'm living, right? We are living, active, business, all the rest of it, can psychologically end everything. You understand what I'm saying? Can you end your attachment instantly, immediately, your anger, your violence, your greed, your this and that, end while living. Therefore you are then Living is dying. You say, not living and ultimately die. I wonder if you follow that. Living means the dying. Otherwise, you are not alive. And most of us are frightened of dying because we have never been able to live properly. We have never lived, you understand? But we have lived in conflict, in struggle, in pain, in anxiety, in you know all the rest of it. So we call that living. Living is not all that, right? So, if that can be all that can be ended, then there is living. 
So they are then living and dying. You follow? They go together, like a flower with perfume. The perfume is not away from the flower. It is there. And this is an actual ending of senility, if you want to go into it very deeply. So your mind never, never gets old. A machine, like an internal combustion machine, like a car, is always wearing itself out because of friction. Right? But when there is no friction whatsoever, the mind keeps. You follow? But it's not your mind, it's the human mind. I wonder if you understand this. Because you, your mind is the result of million years. Your mind is the mind of the Indian, of the Chinese, Russian, the other human beings, because they go through similar pain, anxiety, sorrow, pleasures, occasional joys and occasional love. So our brain, our mind, is the mind of humanity. If we can understand that one real fact, then we will live without any division. The third extract is from Krishnamurti's eighth talk in Madras, 1961, titled The Scientific Mind and the Religious Mind. The really scientific mind and the really religious mind are the only two minds that can exist in the 20th century. Not the superstitious, believing, temple-going, church-worshipping mind. The scientific mind is the mind that pursues fact. And that to pursue the materialistic, the fact which is discovered under the microscope, the atom and so on, needs immense accumulated knowledge. And such a scientific mind is the product of the 20th century. So one begins to say that a scientific mind, the so-called educated mind, the mind that has learned a certain technique, thinks rationally with knowledge and moves from the known to the known, from fact to fact. Such a mind is necessary. 
absolutely necessary. Because it can reason from log logically, sanely, rationally, precisely. But such a mind cannot obviously free itself to inquire into the what is beyond the accumulated knowledge, which is the function of religion. So, what is the religious mind? You know, there is a way of thinking which is negative, which is the only highest form of thinking. The highest form of thinking is still limited thinking. Negative thinking, that is, to see what is false, not what is true, you can't. Because we are all trained to think positively, which is to think Im imitatively, think according to tradition, to what has been known, following a particular method, a system, always projecting from the past, which, we, which is what is called positive thinking. Whereas there is a negative thinking, which is to see the false, which is the positive, and from there proceed. And that's what we are going to do, to find out what is the religious mind. Seeing what is false and denying it totally, not accepting one breath of it. And you cannot dis deny totally if you already know that you will gain in denying the false. To deny something totally, if you knew the future, you would not be denying, would you? If I denied all religious organizations as being false, you no, know, without any foundation. And I knew that I denied because there is, I find hope in some other organization, then that is not a denial. I can only deny not knowing the next step. And that is real denial, that's real renunciation, not knowing, but knowing that which is false. That is negative thinking. So we are going to inquire into what is the religious mind negatively. First, the religious mind obviously is not the believing mind. 
Because belief is based on the desire to be secure, to be safe. And so belief in any form prevents right inquiry, the right question. If I believe in nationalism, then I cannot possibly investigate how to be truly brotherly with another. I must deny nationalism. Then I shall find out what is to live with another amicably, in a brotherly spirit. But most of our religions are beliefs. You believe that there is a God. Because you have been told for ten thousand years through propaganda that there is a God, that there is an Atman, all kinds of verbal statements, spinning theories and words. And you believe that because you have been brought up in it, educated. And you go to the other end of the world. Russia and other parts, they don't believe in it. They have been brought up not to believe. There isn't much be difference between the one who believes in God and the one who does not believe in God, because they are both slaves to propaganda. One for ten thousand years and the other for forty years. I know you will laugh. I know it's you think it is quite funny, but you will still believe. And a man who would really inquire if there is or if there is not, obviously must wipe totally away all his conditioning, all his belief in God. So the religious mind is not a mind which believes. Not the mind which goes to the temple. You are going to the temple every day, repeating certain phrases, doing mantra, you know, all the rest of it. Doesn't indicate you are a religious man at all. It may indicate that you are a superstitious man that you are caught in a habit which society has passed on to you. You may substitute rich religious rituals to parades, to attending footballs, cricket, sitting by the hour by the radio. This is all the same thing. So the ritualistic mind the mind that goes to the temple church and that worships a symbol is not the religious mind at all. Why does one do it? 
Why do you do it? For various obvious reasons. First, that you have been trained. This been instilled into you to believe, to seek shelter in an idea. If you haven't God, if you haven't a God, you have the state to worship. Mr. Lenin or some other Marx with their priests. We all want security because we are frightened of life. We are, tr we are troubled. Someone dies, we lose his job. Something happens to us. We don't face it, we don't go into it. Factually, with a scientific mind, break through it. And so we turn easily, quietly and darkly to something that we hope will be, will give us security, some peace. And it does give peace, it does give security. A belief does give security. But the security is just word. It's empty. It has no, it has no psychological significance. The whole religious structure in which you have been brought up, with all the authority involved in it. So, the temple, the church, the symbol which is used to excite and organize man to worship God is not a religious mind at all. To deny that, to deny the whole structure, the whole religious structure in which you have been brought up, with all the authority involved in it, the Shankaras, the Buddhas, the Gurus, the, the Gitas, the Bible, to deny all that, totally, is the beginning of the religious mind, which doesn't mean that you become skeptical or accept other authority. It denies authority. of any religious or any teacher. And therefore, of all the books and of all the temples and churches, to deny it is very difficult. Because you might lose your job. There's your mother to cry, who cries. And you yourself so, so frightened that if, can you deny such gods who have been worshipped for so many centuries? Who are you to deny them? You know the inventions, the tricks we play upon ourselves. And to deny and to remain in that denial.
that's the beginning of the real religious mind. Because when you deny what is false, your mind becomes very sensitive. When you deny the false, you have energy. You know, you need a great deal of energy to inquire and to discover and to live in that religious mind. Energy. As you have energy when you eat. You need energy and abundance of it. But you cannot have that energy if you are in conflict. Conflict with the fact of what you are and what you should be, which is the ideal. Therefore, the religious man has no ideal. He's only facing the fact from moment to moment. And the virt virtue is in facing the fact. And out of that facing the fact you have an uncontrolled discipline. Not the deadly practice of what you call discipline, which is habit. A, re a resistance, a suppression. So a mind which is inquiring into the quality and into the nature of the religious mind is a mind that is free from the ordained, rigorous, religious, traditional discipline. But it has its own extraordinary, unsuppressed, uncontrolled discipline, which, is, which comes into being when you look at the fact. You know, to look at a fact requires a great deal of energy. You can only look at a fact when you are not in conflict with the fact. <coughs> the fact being what you are at the given moment. The fact that you may be jealous, ambitious, greedy, envious, ruthless, heartless. To face that fact, to look at it, requires energy. You cannot live with that fact if you are in conflict with that fact. And when you look at that fact without conflict, that very fact releases energy which brings about its own discipline. And such discipline does not distort the mind, because there is no suppression. All our disciplines are a means of suppressing what the fact is, because we worship and escape to the ideal, which is a non-fact. So if you are listening, which I hope you are, not merely listening to words, 
which are very cheap and in abundance. If you are observing yourself as through what is being said, you are bound to see the fact. And if you are not in conflict with, the, with what is actually, which is yourself, not your Atmans and all the rest of it, which has no meaning at all. Then you will see, as you are watching the fact, the what is out of that comes a strange discipline. Because to watch something very clearly, you do not condemn, you have no judgment. Like a scientific mind watching something. Dispassionately. So a religious mind has no authority and therefore a religious mind is not an imitative mind. And you will see also the religious mind is not caught in time. It doesn't think in terms of evolution, growth, gradualism. That is the animalistic mind. Because the brain some part of the brain is evolved, grown out of the animalistic instinct. The rest of the brain is still to be developed. And if it develops according to the animalistic instincts, experiences, it will still remain in time. And therefore, a religious mind never thinks in terms of growth, evolution. It is always jumping out of time. I think you will understand this, which may be rather new and strange to you, because that's what I mean by mutation. A changing mind, a changing brain, is always moving from the known to the known. But a religious mind is always, is always freeing itself from the known, so that it will know it is experiencing the unknown. The unknown is out of time. The known is in time. And so the religious mind, if you have gone very deeply into it, you will see 
is not slave to time. If it is aware that it is ambitious or jealous or fearful, it doesn't think in terms of ideals, of postponement. It ends it immediately on the instant. And the very ending of it is the beginning of that extraordinary, subtle, sensitive discipline which is uncontrolled, which is free. So, the religious mind is really the real revolutionary mind. Not the revolution which is the reaction of what has been. Like communism is a revolution. It's only a reaction to capitalism. Therefore, it's not a revolution at all. No reaction is a revolution. And therefore it cannot bring about a mutation. It's only the religious mind. It's only the mind that is inquiring into itself, aware of its own, its own movements, its own activities, which is the beginning of self-knowledge. It's only such a mind that is, really, that is a revolutionary mind. And revolutionary mind is the mutating mind, which is the religious mind. The fourth extract is from Krishnamurti's seventh talk in Sanan, 1971, titled A Mind in Harmony. See, we are asking, what is intelligence? Is intelligence cultivable? Is intelligence innate? And does so that does thought see the truth of conflict, division and all the rest of it? Or it is the quality of mind I've got it. It is the quality of mind that it sees the fact and is completely quiet with the fact. completely silent with the fact. Not try to go beyond it, overcome it, change it, but completely still with the fact. It is that stillness that is intelligence. Got it. So intelligence is not thought. Intelligence is the science. Therefore, totally impersonal. Doesn't belong to any group, to any person, to any race, to any culture. So, I have found mind has found that 
where there is silence, not put together by thought and discipline, practice and all that terrible horror, but seeing, seeing that thought cannot possibly go beyond itself, because thought is the result of the past, and where the past is functioning it must create division, and therefore conflict, sorrow and all the rest of it. Seeing that, and remaining completely still with that, you know, it's like being completely still with sorrow. You know, somebody whom you love or whom, for whom you care, whom you have looked after, cherished, loved, concerned with, when that person dies there is the shock of loneliness, despair, sense of isolation, everything falls round you in that sorrow to remain with it, not seeking explanation, the cause, why should he go and why not I, to remain completely still with it, the, to remain with it completely still is intelligence. And that's Intelligence then can operate in thought, using knowledge, and that knowledge and thought, thought will not create division. I've got to get in it. So the question arises from that, how is the mind, your mind, which is so endlessly chattering, Listen to this, please listen to it, which is so endlessly bourgeois, caught in a trap, struggling, seeking, uh, going after the masters and, you know, gurus and disciplining. How is that mind to be completely still? Now, you know, harmony is stillness. Harmony, not discord. Harmony between the body. the heart and the mind, complete harmony. That means the body, your body, must not be imposed upon by the mind, disciplined by the mind, 
disciplined by the mind when it likes certain kind of food, tobacco, drugs, you follow? The excitement of all that, being controlled by the mind. Then it is an imposition, whereas the body, when it is sensitive, alive, has its own intelligence, not spoiled. One must have such a body, terribly alive, sensitive, active, not drugged. And also one must have a heart, you understand, not excitement, not sentiment, sentiment, not emotion. Not enthusiasm, but that sense of fullness, you know, depth, quality, vigour, that can only, when there is love. And a mind that has immense peace. Then there is harmony. Now, how is the mind, listen to this, to come upon this? I am sure you are all asking this, perhaps not sitting there, but when you go home, when you walk, when you are looking at the… how can one have this sense of complete unity, integrity, without any sense of distortion, division? fragmentation, the body, the heart and the mind. How do you think you can have it? Now, you see the fact of this, don't you? Huh? You see the truth of it, that you must have a complete harmony in yourself, mind, the heart, the body. It's like having clear window, unspotted, without any scratch, unsullied. Then, as you can look out through a window, you can see everything without any distortion. Now, how can you have it? Now, who sees the fa this truth? You are following? Who sees the truth that there must be this harmony, complete harmony? As we said, when there is harmony, there is silence. When one of the three becomes distorted, there is trouble. There is noise. But when the mind, the heart and the organ are completely in harmony, there is silence. Now, who sees this fact? You understand my question? Do you see it 
as an idea, as a theory, as something you should have. If you do, then it is all the function of thought. Then you will say, tell me what the system, what kind of system I must have to get this. I will practice, I will deny, I will discipline, I will cook myself brown. All that is the activity of thought. But when you see the truth of this, the truth, not what should be, when you see that is the fact, it is so, then the, it is intelligence that sees it. Therefore it is intelligence that will function to, and therefore bring, bring about the state. You get it? Not thought. I can't do any more. So thought is of time. Intelligence is not of time. So intelligence is immeasurable, not the scientific intelligence, not the intelligence of a technician, not the intelligence of a housewife, not the intelligence of a man who knows a tremendous lot. That's all within the field of thought and knowledge. <coughs> And it is only when the mind is completely still, and it can be still, you don't have to practice, control, it can be completely still. And when it is, there is harmony, there is vast peace and silence, and it is only then the immeasurable ace. The final extract in this episode is from the fourth talk in Madras, 1974, titled A Mind with Enormous Space. So there is order, which is beauty. There is order, there is beauty of love, beauty of compassion. And also there is the beauty of a clean street, of a good architectural form of a building. There is beauty of a tree, the lovely leaf, the great big branches, to see all that is beauty. Not merely go to museums and talk everlastingly about beauty. So, silence of a quiet mind is the essence of that beauty. 
And because it is silent, and because it is not the plaything of thought, then in that silence there comes that which is indestructible, which is sacred. And in the coming of that which is sacred, then life becomes sacred, your life becomes sacred. Our relationship becomes sacred. Everything becomes sacred, because you have touched that thing which is sacred. And then we have to also to find out in meditation if there is something or if there is nothing which is eternal, timeless. Which means, can the mind, which is, which has been cultivated in the area of time, can that mind find out, come upon, or see that thing that is from everlasting to everlasting? So it means, can the mind be without time? Though time is necessary to go from here to there and all the rest of it, can that mind, that very same mind which operates in time, going from here to there, not psychologically, but physically, can that mind be without time, which means can that mind be without the past, without the present, without the future? Can that mind be in absolute nothingness. Don't be frightened of that word. You know, have you ever looked at an empty cup? When you pour your coffee into it, before you pour it, have you watched it? Have you seen the emptiness of it? And because it's empty, it can receive. And 
because it's empty, it has got vast space. Have you observed in your own mind, if you have any space at all there, just space, you know, little space, or is everything crowded? Crowded by your worries, by your sex or no sex, by your achievements, by your knowledge, by your ambitions, fears, by your anxieties, your pettiness is crowded. And how can such a mind understand or be that state of being or having that enormous space? Space is always enormous. I don't know if you understand all this. And a mind that has no space in daily life cannot possibly come upon that which is eternal, which is timeless. And that's why meditation becomes extraordinarily important. Not the meditation that you all practice, that's not meditation at all, but the meditation of which we are talking about transforms the mind. And it is only such a mind as the religious mind, and it's only such a religious mind can bring about a different culture, different way of life, different relationship, a sense of sacredness and therefore great beauty and honesty. All this comes naturally, without effort, without battle, without sacrifice, without control. And this is the beginning and the ending of meditation. 